0: I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was
1: born in Hamburg, Germany. I was
0: born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania and refugee camp. I
1: was born in Singapore, Guatemala.
0: I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand, refugee I was born in Mumbai.
1: I was born in Pyeongchang, Laos. I was
0: born in England. I was born in Costa
2: Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Samir Mustović was born and raised in Buzim, a small village in the northwest corner of Bosnia. Life was peaceful, serene, until Yugoslavia began to break up, and a fight for independence ushered in the Bosnian War.
0: It was almost like a movie. we would we watch evening news and see what was happening. City after city, they would be capturing. There's just death and destruction and carnage. And We knew that sooner or later it will come to us.
2: Samir prefers to focus on the positives rather than dwell in the past. But what happened to him next shattered the world he knew. Elena Yusin has his story. On June 30th,
1: 1993, Samir, just 21 years old, was home on a break from his post at the front line where he and his neighbors were digging trenches and fighting to protect their village as the war drew closer. His eldest sister was visiting with her newborn baby. Samir and his brother-in-law were in the backyard picking pears when they heard shelling nearby. They rushed toward the house for safety, but were stopped short by a large explosion.
0: It probably landed about 15 yards in front of us. The impact was so big that it it literally, it physically lifted me and threw me back. I landed back on on, on my back. And I distinctly remember feeling that dirt and gunpowder in my mouth to this day that, I mean, I I don't think that will ever clear my memory. The first thing that I saw was my left arm. It was barely hanging. It was almost completely detached. I remember trying to move, but I couldn't. I wanted to get closer to the house because my, in my mind, I'm thinking another one. I'm thinking, you know, this is not going to stop. Uh, so I wanted to pull myself closer to the house, uh, and I couldn't. I couldn't figure out why. Then I kept calling for help, and nobody's coming and I couldn't understand that either. I truly thought that was the end of my life. I I quit calling for help. I just put my head down and I said my prayers.
1: Prior to the war, Samir had a somewhat idyllic childhood His father worked in a store and his mother was a homemaker. He was spoiled by his two older sisters. Samir walked a couple miles to and from town to attend elementary school where he excelled in math and occasionally represented the school in competitions.
0: We were not poor, but certainly not wealthy. We had a small house. The house was actually on a hill uh, just outside of that town. We had some land. It was very common in Bosnia back then to join with your neighbors to work on that land. We had uh, orchards and gardens and had some animals and so on. Pears, apples, um, all kinds of fruit. My father actually, he truly enjoyed that. In fact, after the war, there were competitions for the best backyard and uh, he was very proud of his backyard. He, he, he actually won took first place one year and a couple more years, he took second place. And I, I actually enjoyed working with animals. We had animals, you know, for milk, eggs, all of that, but also once or, th- or twice a year, every family would have to take some animals to the market to sell. My father never liked that of course no one else in the family would do it because my sister always get attached to the animals and they always cried when we had to you know sell them and i actually wanted to do it
1: so at 13 samir took this responsibility on for the family he was the only young person selling animals at the market and quickly proved himself to be a natural negotiator
0: you know there were people who were buying those animals and they would you know see the animal and said Who does this belong to? And I would, I would raise my hand and they would dismiss me, you know, like, no way. I said, well, if you want to buy, you're going to have to talk to me. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, I did. And I kind of proved myself to be a good salesman. And selling that calf was equivalent to three months worth of income that my father was making. So it was significant.
1: Most cities and towns across Bosnia were a mix of three major ethnic groups, each easily distinguished by their religion, with Bosniaks predominantly Muslim, Serbs Orthodox Christian, and Croats Catholic. Samir's village was entirely Bosniak, and Samir, who had a close relationship with his mother, shared her deep Muslim faith.
0: Religion certainly played a, a big role in, in our family and in most families. I think uh, the level of practicing that faith, it was very different uh, between different people and different families. So even in my own family, my father was somewhat of a practicing Muslim, uh, but my mother was, she always was uh, very much. Uh, Religion played a major role in, in her life. That also became a major part of my life uh, as I was growing up because she she truly was my role model. Uh, My mother really was very special to me. She really was truly one of a kind. She was so good to people, animals, plants, everything. She, She just was the kindest person I've ever known. When my mom would go to visit her mother, she would always take some if not all of us all of the children so she she never had much money so <laughs> this one time she just had enough money for the bus fare and so she bought the tickets for to get there and then on our way from the bus stop to her mom's house there was a man sitting on the side of the street begging for money and All she had was enough for the bus fare back home. She couldn't resist. She just gave him all all of that money. And then went to her mom and said, can I borrow some money? (laughs) There are not too many people like that in the world, unfortunately.
1: The nearest high school was 21 miles away. There was no school bus, so Samir and his friends piled onto the city bus every day. They told jokes and goofed around to pass the time. Until one day when, like an angel, Elva appeared.
0: I was on the bus on my way home from high school. And uh, when you board the bus, you know, you would just look for an empty seat. And so I saw this beautiful girl and there was an empty seat next to her. And not only was I uh, looking for an empty seat, but she was absolutely gorgeous. I asked her if that seat is available and she says, yes and we started talking and uh, kind of fell in love with her <laughs> going forward uh, then i think both of us would look for opportunities to see each other like if i was to board the bus first i would look for two empty seats and then i would take one and then i would save the other one if someone would ask if the seat is available i would say no hoping that she is going to board that bus and she was doing the same thing and uh, Yeah, I mean, it didn't take very long before we started dating.
1: Samir and Elva's love bloomed. They spent hours talking at coffee shops, skipping classes to go to the movies, and lingering on a romantic bridge. Still young, they joked about their imagined future together. Samir didn't want to be away from Elva, but as graduation neared, he had military obligations to consider.
0: At that point, Bosnia was part of a larger country called Yugoslavia. And in Yugoslavia, uh, military service was mandatory. And it was very common for people to serve that either right after high school or up to several years after high school, depending on what's going on in their life. My thinking was, I want to get that out of the way. And I want to serve my one year and go to college after that. Yugoslavia as a country was breaking up. Slovenia declared independence, one of the six states. And Yugoslav army truly was for the most part controlled by Serbs. So when Slovenia declared independence, they started a war there. And then it would, next it was Croatia and again, another war. I was in an ammunition depot and we would have to load trucks that would go to the front line in Croatia. And that didn't seem right to me. So I was looking for an opportunity to escape. You have to understand by that point, Bosnia is still part of Yugoslavia. So escaping from Yugoslav army meant that I could be um, court-martialed. There's a good chance that the military police would be looking for me, and I, I could end up in jail if I don't serve my time. I decided that um, the risk is worth it, and I don't want to be part of an army that is causing destruction and death.
1: With just 59 days of his one year of service remaining, Samir made his escape on New Year's Eve, 1991. Arriving home to Buzim, he laid low for a couple months, but fear was rising as signs of the impending Bosnian War became impossible to ignore.
0: I think it would be easiest to summarize that in one word, despair. Uh, It was just uh, people were afraid. At that point, Yugoslav army was considered to be fourth strongest army in Europe. And they also knew that they had nothing. So everyone was hoping and praying that the war doesn't start, but people were also mostly realistic and realizing that there's a good chance that it will. So eventually, a few months later, the war does start in Bosnia. I lived in Western Bosnia. The war actually started in Eastern Bosnia. It was almost like a movie. We would we watch evening news and see what was happening city after city they would be capturing there's just death and destruction and carnage and we knew that sooner or later it will come to us so people start organizing and coming up with um, plans and ways to defend ourselves i remember that my father had a small handgun and about 15 bullets or so. I remember taking that and saying, I'm, I'm gonna fight. And it was, it, it's, it's almost comical to think back, you know, there's, there, there are things coming at you uh, and you're holding this little gun and saying, I'm gonna fight.
1: <laughs> Villagers young and old gathered up hunting rifles and whatever weapons they could find. A chain of command was formed and they began digging trenches. A front line was established a few kilometers from town. Everyone took turns fighting. When someone went home for a break, they'd leave their weapon behind for the next person. About a year into this routine, Samir was home from the front line for that fateful visit from his oldest sister and her newborn baby.
0: And on that particular day, the entire morning was very peaceful. Uh, Not much was happening, and then In the early afternoon, my brother-in-law and I went to pick some pears. As we left, I remember my younger sister holding the baby. That was my parents' first grandchild, so obviously they were very happy. And my dad was inside the house, and and my mom and the sister were standing outside uh, and talking. And then shelling starts.
1: As Samir lay on the ground, his arm dangled unnaturally from his body. His midsection was torn apart by shrapnel that had punctured his lungs and stomach. He did not yet know that his spinal cord had been severed, or that his mother and elder sister had also been hit. They lay dying, just steps away on the other side of the house.
0: My best friend, who actually lived in a village nearby, maybe, 200 yards from there. So from his house, he saw the explosion and he ran from his village. He found me and he, by that point, both of us have seen our share of injured people and dead people throughout the war. So he knew that I would bleed to death if if the bleeding is not minimized. So he tied my arm right above the injury. To minimize the bleeding and then just kind of try to bandage me up as much as he could so that I can get to the hospital and I remember uh, the ride to the hospital was painful because parts of that road there's no asphalt so the car was shaking when I arrived to that hospital I believe I only stayed there for half an hour. They also couldn't do much. I needed to go to the regional hospital. 200,000 people lived in that part of Bosnia, and it was completely surrounded by Serb forces. But that was the biggest hospital in the area. And that's really where I needed to be for them to properly treat my injuries to the degree that they could you know considering the circumstances war and everything uh i ended up being loaded into a UN ambulance and there was a french doctor who stayed with me in the ambulance on that final ride to the to the regional hospital apparently somewhere between those two cities my heart stopped and uh you know, without having a professional there, I probably would have just died. Uh, So he did CPR and brought me back. But I do remember being conscious when I arrived to the regional hospital. So they ended up having two teams working on me simultaneously. One was working on my arm, and the other one was working on my uh, Stomach, chest, lungs, area, pulling the shrapnels out and stitching things up, and it was... You know, no no one could tell at this point if I was gonna live or die. Really, the the doctors didn't know. My situation remained critical for a long time. I needed blood. So they were looking for uh, volunteers to give blood and so many so many people showed up and uh, so my family you know my my younger sister and my dad were coming to visit and other relatives and it, it was somewhat limited partially because i really was in critical condition but also you have to understand there's war going on they don't have a car so for them to find a way to get to the hospital was not easy. But I knew nothing about my mother and sister at that point. I I guess my condition was bad enough that I really wasn't asking questions at that point. There were so many people in in the regional hospital, and people would be uh, in the hallways. There was simply not enough room for everyone. Electricity was on and off. Not enough food, not enough medicine. You had minor surgeries that would be uh, done without anesthesia because you had to save that for more complex surgeries. At this point, the entire area is completely surrounded. So no one can leave the area. In fact, there were many convoys, humanitarian convoys with food and medicine and, and many of them never made it because the civil forces would feel like that would be helping us so they didn't want to. But there was always some form of negotiation happening for this or that and, and one of those was for the patients to, to leave the area, critical patients to leave the area.
1: After two weeks in the regional hospital, Samir was brokered in one of these deals, which landed him in a more modern hospital in the capital of Slovenia, where they operated on his arm again and on his spinal cord.
0: I really needed a reconstructive surgery on my arm, but they really couldn't do it until it heals enough for that to happen. So they kept talking about that, but kept delaying that until a later time. In meantime, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot. I'm slowly realizing that I'm paralyzed. I'm slowly realizing that it's permanent. So processing that alone is very difficult. By that point, my condition was obviously better to a point where I was curious about my mother and sister you know slowly I'm kind of coming to a conclusion that, that they're not alive anymore by that point I don't know why nobody's telling me
1: two months after the blast Samir's need to know outweighed his fear of the truth so on his cousin's next visit Samir finally asked he was devastated to learn that his sister had died instantly And his mother survived her wounds for only an hour.
0: I didn't sleep the entire night. My whole childhood, my memories were coming back. You know, I had good life with my family, and enjoyable life. And it's just taken away from you in a moment. And you never get to see them again.
1: Several months after arriving at the hospital in Sylvania, Samir received a game-changing visit from a man named Halil Puskar. Halil, a wealthy businessman living in Chicago, had grown up not too far from Samir. While delivering aid to people across Bosnia, Halil had met one of Samir's cousins who told him Samir's story. Halil was compelled to pay him a visit.
0: He talked, and and, uh, I remember he was... uh, taking quite a few pictures and as he was leaving he said, you know'll I'll see what I can do for you and honestly I I didn't really think much of what he said I you know when you're desperate and I and and, and I was at that point um, you hope you 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 wish that things would happen but I didn't expect much then for a while nothing happened and then just out of the blue, my cousin comes to visit and he said, guess what? I think uh, we work things out and you're gonna have a chance to go to the United States for medical treatment. All I knew was that I needed a surgery and here's a chance to get that surgery.
1: Wheels began to turn. Back in the U.S., Halil's wife relayed Samir's story to a doctor she met at a fundraising event for Bosnian refugees. After reviewing Samir's medical files, that doctor, Nassim Ashraf, agreed to help. He began making plans for a pro bono reconstructive surgery in Roseburg, Oregon. Samir's cousin was able to secure him a tourist visa. Arriving in Roseburg, Samir was comforted by the hilly green landscape. It reminded him of home but new trials awaited.
0: I didn't speak any English and there was no one who spoke my language. They would bring me a menu and ask me what I wanna eat. And I would look at the menu and I don't know what anything means. So I just circled something. And I ended up eating salad that day, which I hate salad. So I quickly learned what not to circle. Uh, Eventually, uh, I learned what chicken is and what lamb is. And for the rest of my time in the hospital, I ate that for lunch and dinner every day. I just didn't want to take chances. (laughs) So there were many challenges along the way, but somehow things just worked out. So the plastic surgeon from Roseburg decided to call uh, another plastic surgeon who was in medical school with him. And that gentleman lived in Springfield, Illinois. And sure enough, he said, okay, I'd be happy to do it. And so they get him a ticket and he flies out to Oregon. And so while all of this was happening, it didn't really make sense to keep me in the hospital for that entire time. They expected that the surgery is not going to take place in at least a month. And they find a family that has daycare and ask them if they would be willing to take me in for a very limited time. They said, yeah, let's give it a try. And they bring me in. Um, I remember they had to build a ramp to get into the house and... By this point I have learned a little, little bit of English so I had enough to to have a basic conversation and communicate you know my needs and things like that. So this young family had uh three young kids um and the youngest was 18 months old and she was just adorable. And she and I bonded very quickly and so I stayed there until the surgery, and then the, su- the surgery happens, and it ended up be- being even more complex than they expected. I was told that it was actually 18 hours instead of 12. When um, the doctors were asked about the surgery, they said, we feel good. Uh, we think we accomplished a lot, but it's imp- really impossible to tell. Uh, But it took a year for those nerves to reconnect.
1: The reconstructive surgery would turn out to be successful, more successful than the doctors could have even hoped for. While healing, Samir had decisions to make.
0: The war was still going on. The area from which I come was still under siege. That siege, by the way, ended up uh, lasting 1,201 days. So I couldn't go back. And uh, I was here on a tourist visa. What to do next? So um, there was this young lawyer who heard about me and said, uh, if you want to uh, apply for a political asylum, I think we can get that easily because we can easily prove that your life would be in danger, in danger if you go back, if you attempt to go back home. And she said, you know, I'll be happy to provide whatever assistance I can to make that happen. And by the way, I'm, it's, it's free. And that was very kind of her. And I, I was, you know, all of those cases were kind of restoring my faith in humanity. Because, you know, what happened to me was done by people. So you, you get to a point where you're really disappointed and you, 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 know, you feel like, how can people do this? How can human beings do this to other human beings? But then all of those examples of you know, that young family that took me in and then this ESL teacher, you know, she's spending her time not asking anything in return to help me, another human being just out of kindness of her heart. And then another one, this lawyer, you know. So, all of this is happening. And so I, I see nothing but goodness in people at this point. And it, it really, like I said, that was restoring my faith in humanity.
1: Samir, 23 at this point, signed up for several classes at Umpqua Community College while continuing his rehabilitation.
0: I didn't think my English was good enough to attend college classes, and, but I guess I was open to anything. And so I said, well, let's give it a try. I struggled. I remember needing to put together a short paragraph as an assignment, and I just could not do it. And I went to my teacher, I said, I'm gonna quit this class. I almost cried. I felt really bad. I I simply couldn't put together that paragraph. And she said, stay in the class. I'll give you a passing grade if you just stay in the class. You know, that could have been the point of no return. So I could have quit and, and never take another college class. My life would be very different today if that happened two people that took care of me for physical therapy, Stuart and Dan, very good human beings, very kind. And I was working on whatever they gave me to work on. And this gentleman rolls in in a wheelchair and he said something like, you know, I recognize you, I saw your, story on TV, uh, it was on local news. And uh, I'm here to give you a car. I'm Looking at him, you're here to do what? <laughs> <laughs> Basically what happened was he was a truck driver and um, ended up having a, a major accident and ended up being paralyzed. So he bought an older car and modified it to be used with hand controls Eventually, um, he ended up getting a settlement and he was gonna get something else for himself. And he felt that this would be a good, good thing to do and give me a chance to learn to drive and use the car for a while. And uh, again, just uh, another human being who didn't really gain anything from that transaction other than feeling that he's helping another human being. And how beautiful is that? And he said, the car does have an issue. Uh, I don't think it's anything major, but I, you should probably have someone look into it. My physical therapist that day was Dan, and he said, hey, let me let me take a look at that. I, I, I like tinkering with, with, with cars. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to fix it, but I'll be happy to give it a try. He comes back the next day, and he said, I fixed it. You want to go for a ride?
1: (laughs) While taking classes at the community college, Samir learned about a year-long vocational rehabilitation training program in computer programming. He jumped at the chance. At the end of the rigorous course, Samir was awarded Student of the Year and received a job offer from the IT director at United Grocers. He started work the following Monday. Things were going well for Samir, but he missed home.
0: When the war ended, I really wanted to go back to see my family. I didn't really have any money. The doctor who sponsored my medical treatment from Roseburg, he ended up recognizing that, and he said... uh, Would you like to go see your family? I said, I would love to. He said, I'll get you a ticket and cover your expenses. And he did. Uh, Yeah, that was in 96, summer of 96. And gosh, that was, that was something. Um, I remember crossing the border and there was about 50 people waiting for me on the other side of the border. They couldn't wait for me to get to the house. And it it was really a combination of extremes, extreme happiness and extreme sadness. This is the first time that I'm back and first visit to my mother's grave and my sister's grave. And by that point, my best friend's grave, my cousin's grave, and so many other people that I knew. That have been killed in the war so very emotional very very challenging to go through that Uh, at the same time very happy to see my dad and my other sister and other friends and family members and and i wanted to inhale every moment of that I, i just wanted to truly enjoy that
1: the biggest joy of all came when Samir was reunited with his high school sweetheart, Elva.
0: I just remember that she was just so beautiful. I, I, I loved her for a long time, and I, she was always beautiful to me. But perhaps be, because I didn't see her for a long time, that moment she just looked like she's from a fairy tale. <laughs> so uh, eventually, we end up talking, and... I'm in love with her, so uh, I know what I want. She knows what she wants, and it happens to be the same thing. In my mind, I have to process this. I have to, um, okay, so we love each other. Is that enough? We live on two different continents. How does her family feel about this? There are a number of obstacles to go over, and I'm not feeling too optimistic. I think, I think too many things are stacked against me or against us, I should say. But we, we kind of, we didn't rush in, into anything. We kind of talked things over. And I remember the second visit that I was there, we took things to the next level and we were actually seeing each other. And so we eventually, get to a point where we reach a conclusion we are meant to be together we want to get married
1: in 2001 the pair was married in bosnia even with samir working political and diplomatic channels it took two and a half years to bring elva to the u.s at last she joined him in portland on christmas eve 2004 a couple years later they had twins who are now 16 years old
0: One of the ways I was really coping with uh, processing everything that happened to me and not focusing on the past uh, was I always wanted to stay busy. I wanted to have something to do to keep my mind occupied on something current. So I kept looking for things to do. I was mindful of the fact that so many people stepped out of their comfort zone to help me. And if I didn't try to do the same and be helpful to someone else, it wouldn't be right. I felt like I need to contribute back. I need to give back to society, to to someone else.
1: From that first IT job, Samir worked his way up to his current position as a software architect for the state of Oregon. Outside the office, you might find him refurbishing computers or picking chestnuts. His wife loves the snow, and the family enjoys taking winter trips to Mount Hood, where Samir learned adaptive skiing. Samir is also passionate about giving back to his community. One way he does this is through teaching at the Islamic Bosniaks Educational Cultural Organization
0: they 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 organized what they called Bosnian school uh as part of our uh, Bosnian center and it was basically to teach everything from the language to geography history everything related to bosnia uh and it was teaching kids born to bosnian parents their parents often are busy making trying to make something out of their lives um, you have to understand that uh, the, the the bosnian population here in portland vancouver area is somewhere between three and five thousand prior to the war there were three families so all of those people came as a result of the war and all of those people lost everything they had They came with a little bag from UN and had to start from scratch. And so this Bosnian school kind of becomes a supplement to give them a sense of their roots, where they come from, where their parents come from. Uh, and, And I feel strongly that it's important to keep that connection. For the same reason, we take our kids back to visit every year. You know the old saying, history repeats itself, it truly does. And the reason I feel strongly about telling my story and telling what I went through, as painful as it is, is to hopefully influence where things go a little bit. But if we share, if people who have go- gone through struggle, if we tell our stories, perhaps it will influence decision-making somewhere down the road where it prevents another war from happening. Statistically, I should have been dead by now. If, uh, if my life, if it didn't have so many people people and so many miracles, I would have been one of the statistics. I would have been one of thousands and thousands who had similar fate, but ended up not succeeding and call it what you want. I call it fate, but things did work out in my life. I truly had so many miracles.
2: Many Roads to here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced and edited by Elena Yusin, with post-production by Greg Palmer. Our executive producer is the fabulous Sankar Raman. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for letting us use their space to record this interview. The episode is made possible by a generous contribution from the Oregon Cultural Trust. To watch Samir tell his story in front of a live audience, or for more stories, visit the Immigrant Story website, listen live at prp.fm, or stream us